0: Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would indeed be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to be with you today. And I want to start by introducing you to one of my favorite writers. Um, Who here is familiar with Dallas Willard? Okay, a couple folks. I want to tell you a little bit about Dallas Willard. Um, As we get going, Dallas Willard was a philosophy professor at USC, the one in California, not South Carolina. Um, And he was really well known for his work on Christian spiritual formation. Um, He was actually a Baptist, a Southern Baptist, and I think he's probably every Anglican's favorite Southern Baptist. Um, He would go around warning his fellow Southern Baptists about what he called vampire Christianity. You know what vampire Christianity is? It says vampire Christianity is about vampire Christians who are only in it for the blood, only in it to be saved, and only in it for eternal life. Um, And he he used that, I mean, it's a little bit of a jab, but he kind of made us stop and think hey, what what does it mean to be a Christian? Um, What is this about? Is it that we pray a prayer? Is it just we get baptized? Is there a a new way of life that Jesus calls us into? And Dallas is very strong on you're saved uh, by grace uh, through the finished work of Christ, his death and resurrection, but you're saved for discipleship. And you're saved for being an apprentice of the Lord Jesus. And actually by the Holy Spirit, you will be conformed and made into the image of Christ. Christ. Um, he talked about Jesus, the, the master teacher. And he said, Jesus always has the best information on everything. And certainly the most important things that matter the most in the human life. Here's how Dallas described uh, the process uh, or the Christian life. It says a process of increasingly being uh, possessed and permeated by the fruit of the spirit. As we walk in the easy yoke of discipleship with Jesus As our teacher. And from the inward character, deeds of love uh, flow out naturally and uh, supernaturally. Um, I bring that up because Dallas Willard uh, did so much work saying, let's attend to the Sermon on the Mount. Let's attend to the teachings of the Lord Jesus and figure out how uh, we can cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives um, to produce lives that look like this sermon. And cohere with obedience to uh, this sermon. Um, And so we're going to be, this is our second week looking at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. This little short series we're doing uh, before the series uh, season of Lent. Um, I will tell you, throughout this sermon, Jesus will hit topics one after the other. And so it feels like we're going to jump in and it feels like we don't quite resolve. Well, we're at the front part of his sermon. He hasn't landed the plane Um, Quite yet. We're in Matthew 5. But in just a few paragraphs, he's going to give us some images that tell us uh, our identity as God's people, our vocation, what he calls us to, our mission in the world. And then he issues this stunning, uh, sometimes misunderstood statement about how he relates to the Old Testament and everything that has come before him. Um, So let's look at this for a little bit this morning. Um, I don't know how long we'll go. The first service, the kids just appeared, uh, telling me we were done with the sermon. So we'll see how far we get uh, today before we're done with the sermon. Um, Jesus begins with this uh, image. Uh, You are the salt of the earth. Follow it. You are the light of the world. Just two death strokes, um, two metaphors filled with meaning, um, pretty understandable. Um, He doesn't actually go into much detail, but I just want to kind of play with these, look at them, look at it from a few angles this morning. So first, uh, you are the salt of the earth. Um, Salt, of course, was uh, very common in the first century. It's used for many different things and probably two main uses. The first, it's a preservative. Um, You probably know they didn't have refrigerators in the first century, (laughs) Um, If you had meat, you would salt it, or you would need to brine it, pickle it, uh, vegetables. So that's how you would preserve things for the season. And so there's a sense in which that the church, Christians, are to preserve, um, to protect, um, to keep uh, things uh, the way they're supposed to be. Um, And the second use was to season, to taste. You know that. You put salt on your food, it tastes good, right? Um, Then occasionally, we do read in the Old Testament, they would actually add salt to the covenant sacrifices. It had a religious use um, as well. What's Jesus doing with this? What's it mean to be the salt of uh, the earth? Um, And notice he doesn't tell them that the command here is not become the salt. You see that? He just notifies them of a fact. You are the salt of the earth. Um, The command comes and he says, hey, don't lose your saltiness. And what I think Jesus is getting at here um, is that we are called to be, there's a a distinction uh, between how the lives of Christians should be lived and the lives of the world. Um, That distinction should preserve and uh, season. Um, It should be like the pinch thrown into the sacrifice in the Old Testament. Um, And he says, think carefully about um, the direction of your influence. Is this salt that seasons and influences things? Or are you being seasoned and influenced by being in the world? I think that's the image that he is playing with here. He actually warns, hey, watch out that you don't lose your saltiness. And he's not being mean. He's just pretty matter of fact that if he says, how shall its saltiness be restored if salt loses its taste? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled. This isn't a call for separation, but being different and being distinct in the midst of this world. That's what he's doing with this image. Um, actually, I, I like this because um, <laughs> you, may, you may know that I have a 16-year-old son uh, named Noah, and we bought him salt as a Christmas present this year. I didn't even think, I didn't, if I had planned ahead, I would have known I had a sermon illustration in my back pocket. But, <laughs> Let me, let me explain. Um, last year, he got his first job. He was working at the movie theater, uh, the University 16 over at Epps Bridge. Um, a lot of tickets, a lot of ushering, and a lot of concessions. And if any teenager that you know goes to work at the movie theater, um, I can guarantee you they will watch a lot of movies, and they will become a popcorn connoisseur. <laughs> this is the first uh, nuanced... Uh, connoisseur-like taste our son has developed. It's around popcorn, um, and I remember when very seriously he let us know that everyone thinks the secret to movie theater popcorn is the butter, the little buttery goop. You know, like if you go get Orville Redenbacher movie theater, it's all but it's like no, 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 it's the salt. <laughs> There's a special salt we use at the movie theater to make it taste amazing. Um, it's called Flavaco, F-L-A-V-A-C-O-L. And I, I, I hope this isn't breaking some like confidentiality clause he signed <laughs> about industry secrets. But um, he, he finished up his, he, he's not working there anymore, and he doesn't miss it at all. But uh, in the fall, he just started talk, man, I sure missed that Flavaco <laughs> that goes on the popcorn. And so my wife, being very thoughtful, as she usually is, uh, found our restaurant supply website that we could order uh, Flavico. And so she got this giant, I mean, it's like carton. Uh, like, you know, the milk cartons at school. Um, it's like a giant carton of Flavico. And uh, we wrapped it up and put a bow on it. And I think he's used that more than uh, almost anything else he got for Christmas this year. Um, he has popcorn all the time. <laughs> um, and every time he d- I'm like, man, what, what a difference the right salt makes. Um, and it really is, like, it's a lot better <laughs> when you use the Flavico. Um, and, you know, I've wondered, all right, it's in this, like, goofy industrial restaurant supply container, uh, which is not very, like, teenage proof. Like, you want things that snap and close. And so I'm just waiting for him to just leave the Flavico open, for a while. Do you know how sad he's going to be if that salt goes stale and the Flavico loses its saltiness? What is he going to do with it? Throw it away. And when the Lord says here, what happens if something loses its saltiness? Just says, hey, it's not useful anymore. and you know what? If and when the Flavico goes stale, um, I don't know how long it'll last. We thought it'd last a long time. It's a big 36. It's, it's like halfway gone. <laughs> He's been really using it. Um, but just think, if that goes stale and we throw it away, that's going to be tragic. Because it's the special gift, right? Well, how much more... <laughs> Is Jesus thinking, if you, my folks, are salt and you lose your salt in man, it's just your intended purpose is no longer there. It's not going to do uh, what's supposed to happen. I think for Jesus, he would say what it means to be the salt of the earth, to season and to preserve, is to be living out this sermon. To be living out the kind of life described in the Beatitudes or Um, This section is metaphor, which is nice because when he keeps going, he just gets into commands and he gets into all of our business. Um, And he he doesn't just do like one thing at a time. He's like, let me just hit them all. Um, He's going to get into our business and call us to obedience. And here he's just reminding us that Saul is supposed to influence and preserve and season, not the other way around. We just wonder in our lives, do we flavor and preserve influence and season, or is that influence reversed on us? It's a way to check our hearts and to check our lives, see if we're living in obedience to the sermon. Um, He goes fast. He goes, you're the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. Um, This feels a little more normal um, because light and darkness are images throughout the Scriptures. We see them all over the place. Um, and we see we're reminded that light brings uh, illumination and direction. I think Jesus is highlighting just a few things in this paragraph. You are the light of the world. He says a city uh, set on a hill cannot be uh, hidden. Uh, but before I talk about this, just to point out what, what's very uh, clear. Um, throughout the Gospels, uh, Jesus will both use metaphors of his people and he'll also self-identify with quite a few. So you are the salt of the earth. Um, I don't remember a verse where Jesus says, I am the salt of the world. Do you? But this one, you are the light. He, he frequently, I am the light of the world. Um, and I think it's a clear reminder that any of this is not rooted in our own strength. Um, this light is a reflected light. It's, it's the light Uh, that comes from Christ himself. His work driving back and scattering the darkness um, in our lives and our world. And Jesus is saying, you're called to reflect that as the light of the world. And the first thing we see is that the light is unmistakable. He says, a city set on a hill uh, cannot be hidden. Um, If you are shining, uh, we'll see it. And if you're not, we'll see it. Uh, a city would serve as a beacon if it's up on, uh, on a hill. Um, and I mentioned last Sunday as we got started, uh, this is called the Sermon on the Mount, uh, really to kind of connect us with Mount Sinai as Jesus, the new Moses, uh, gives us God's way for his people. Um, where Jesus is delivering this message uh, is maybe a hilltop. <laughs> like it's not a lot of elevation. It's in the little fishing villages, uh, near Capernaum on that side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, but on the other side, the eastern side of the sea, um, there are some, some pretty big hills and some cliffs and some mountains. Um, and there was one, uh, one of those hills, um, there was a city. It was called Hippos. Um, and that city was well known because it's about 1,000 feet above the Sea of Galilee. Um, and you would see the lights of that city from anywhere and all around. Um, And actually, I mean, just to kind of drive the point home, Deacon Tex a few weeks ago talked about this is Galilee of the Gentiles. Hippos is the Gentile city. Every time, if you were a good Jewish person living around the Sea of Galilee, you would look up and you would see it and you would go, oh, (laughs) we're still waiting for God's deliverance. Um, And so I just imagine when Jesus says a city, he's like, like that one. He's just using everyday things in their lives. They're by the Sea of Galilee. Is that fresh water or salt water? Salt. You've got salt. You've got a city set on a hill. You've got all these things right there in their life. He said light is unmistakable. Second thing is light is useful. And again, I think we probably underestimate this because we have electricity. (laughs) Um, We're not governed as much by the natural cycles of light and darkness. Um, we, you know, we, we turn on the light, it works. Um, kids, they turn on the lights, they just leave it on, right? <laughs> it's like magic. It says, no, think about a lamp. What's going on with a lamp here? It says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. No, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. It's useful. Um, and actually, you got to be kind of careful with it. Um, You know, when I hear the word lamp, you probably know this. You know, this is not the lamp you get at Target, okay? Um, This is like the genie's lamp in Aladdin. So it's this little lamp, and you would fill it with oil. It's got the fire coming up. If you had the the lamp here, and you put a basket over it, guess what's going to happen? It's going to set everything on fire. Um, Light is unmistakable. Light is useful, and light has to be tended carefully because there's some danger uh, with it. Um, And also, light uh, shines. It is directional. Um, Look at what Jesus says here. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Um, You, Christian, you, church, Um, you actually are an advertisement of God, good or ill. (laughs) He's saying, let your light shine before others in such a way that it gives glory to your Father who is in heaven. Um, And let me pause for just a moment here. Um, I think we can get pretty easily confused about uh, how visible our faith should be versus what should be private or what should be secret. Um, And this sermon itself is one of those places where Jesus really wrestles with this. The next chapter, Matthew 6, Jesus has some pretty stern things to say about doing things publicly and visibly. You probably know them. He says, if you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is giving. When you pray, Don't stand on the corner like the hypocrites. Go into your prayer closet, and your Father who is in heaven will be pleased. Um, And it's always, I mean, I was at least taught kind of growing up, that means just keep all this private. Keep it to yourself. But clearly, verse 16 of chapter 5, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works And give glory uh, to your Father who is in heaven. Um, So either Jesus is confused or there's something more going on. Here's what I think is going on. Um, Jesus is not against public piety at all. In fact, I think Jesus says your life is going to be seen. Um, They didn't have like driveways where you could just go kind of hide from your neighbors. Like you're in the middle of the, people know you in these villages, in these towns. um, They know your life. It's on display. What Jesus has an issue with later in chapter 6 is public piety to bring glory to yourself. Um, Here he's talking about piety that gives glory to God. And if you want to stretch the metaphor of you're the light of the world, think about like a spotlight on a stage. Um, What are you pointing the spotlight to? If if you're using your life to illuminate God and his glory, well, that's in complete obedience to this passage. That's what God envisages. Um, Imagine if the stage manager, (laughs) instead of shining the light on the stage, turned the light on themselves. That's what he's getting after in chapter 6. It's just a reminder to check our motives. Um, Are we doing these things? Are we giving Are we praying? Are we speaking in such a way that we're trying to make others be impressed with us? Or are we trying to give glory to God? Um, And it's a a fine line. Um, I think most of us know that we can uh, trip on either side of that tightrope quite often. Um, And Jesus is just reminding us, hey, your life is going to show forth. Um, figure out what it's showing. And, and by the way, there's probably nothing more repugnant <laughs> uh, to the non-Christian and the world than the Christian who is just doing things to shine light on themselves instead of on the Lord. They, we can smell that a mile away, can't we? People know what that looks like. Um, and so what I want to kind of close with this morning, because the kids have not appeared yet, so I clearly still have more time, <laughs> um, which is good to know. Um, I'm just always struck reading this passage or this sermon of what in the world is normal Christianity? Like, I, you know, you can hear about saints and you can hear about great heroes of the faith. Like, what does it mean for just normal people following Jesus? Um, is this even realistic? Is this doable? Has it been done? And if you read the witness of the early church, um, the early church, not on their own strength, but indwelled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, um, lived lives that were unmistakably salty and lived these lives of light and goodness that the world saw and it both confused and enticed. Um, There's a, a document called the Epistle to Diognetus, Um, That's not a New Testament letter. Epistle is just a letter. Um, This was from uh, the Roman world, and it was written about 100 years after uh, the the death and resurrection of our Lord. And I want to read you a a long passage because it tells us a little bit about what normal Christianity looked like then. As the earliest followers of Jesus uh, saw together and by the power of the Spirit um, to live the kind of life described in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to, uh, and this is not a Christian, this is a kind of a cultural observer trying to figure these weird people out. He writes and he says, the difference between Christians and the rest of mankind is not a matter of nationality or language or customs. And so apparently they were drawing people from every tribe, tongue, and nation in the early church. He said, Christians do not live in separate cities of their own, Speak any special dialect. That was cool. Christianese had not been invented yet. Uh, Nor practice any eccentric way of life. They pass their lives in whatever township, Greek or foreign, each man's lot has determined, and conform to ordinary local usage in their clothing, diet, and other habits. Nevertheless, the organization of their community does exhibit some features that are remarkable and even surprising. Listen to what stands out. It says, Though they are residents at home in their own countries, their behavior there is more like transients. Though destiny has placed them here in the flesh, that they do not live after the flesh. Their days are passed on earth, but their citizenship is above in the heavens. They obey the prescribed laws, but in their own private lives, they transcend the laws. They show love to all men, and all men persecute them. So they are misunderstood and condemned. Yet by suffering death, they are quickened unto life. They are poor, yet make many rich, lacking all things, Yet having all things in abundance, he finishes, they repay curses with blessings and abuse with courtesy. For the good they do, they suffer stripes as evildoers. The only thing I can think is that the early church thought they were supposed to obey the teachings of this sermon. Because that sounds like the Beatitudes, (laughs) that sounds like a people that is salty a people that is shining with the light of goodness. Um, And Jesus is not being terribly original here. Um, You might have noticed when uh, Father Joe opened the service, he read to us from Isaiah 49, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That was a prophecy Isaiah made of the servant of the Lord both the servant, his Messiah, and his servant people, Israel. They were called to be light. They were called to be salt. That's all Jesus is doing. saying, remember what God's people are supposed to be, how they're supposed to live, what purpose they are placed into the world for. Um, and that makes sense because here Jesus says, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Just this, I mean it's just a verse, but just reminds us that the Old Testament prepares the way for the Messiah. It bears witness to Jesus. Um, if you had gone to a Bible study in AD50, they would have been studying the Old Testament. Those were the scriptures, and they read them in light of how it's fulfilled in and through the death and resurrection of Christ. And so much of the rest of the sermon, Jesus is going to unpack. Hey, you heard this in the Old Testament. Let me tell you what that looks like now. Um, you heard this, and you might have tried to follow it in your own strength or gotten hung up on the peculiarities. Let me tell you the spirit of this. Let me tell you what it looks like when God's spirit helps you uh, fulfill the original intent of these commandments. He'll just go issue by issue by issue. Um, if you look, the next thing he's going to talk about, anger, Good thing no one here gets angry. Lust. Good thing no one here has trouble with that. Um, Divorce, oaths, retaliation, love your enemies, giving to. It's it's all practical stuff. Rooted in the Old Testament um, and presented in a way that would say here's what is God's best for you. Um, And by God's Spirit, here's how I'm going to live this out through my people. Later, the very end of the sermon uh, of the Gospel of Matthew, you might know the Great Commission. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, and what? Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. I've got to think, if you ask them, what was that teaching you're trying to pass on? It's the Sermon on the Mount, first and foremost. That's the key teaching of here's what life in the kingdom looks like. And so we do well to do uh, pay it close attention. Um, Kids are still not here. I have just another minute. Good. Okay. Uh, Real quick. Um, This last verse, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, This verse does what almost all of this sermon does it comforts and challenges us at the same time. Because the comfort is that your righteousness (laughs) um, is not going to measure up. But Christ will. And Christ has. And that righteousness is available uh, to you and me. And then there is this process by the Spirit where He's starting to make some of this stuff that we receive by grace. Like, oh my goodness, it actually happens in our lives. Um, And there's this process of being conformed to the image of Jesus. And it's not a straight process. It's not linear. It's not perfect. But day after day, week after week, year after year, decade after decade, um, you can start to look back and see a trajectory. Um, And we can only hope and look forward to imagine the trajectory as we're conformed uh, more and more into the image of Jesus. Um, Let me close with this. Paul, in 2 Corinthians, gives two verses that I think are a distillation of what's happening with both our identity as Christians and our vocation and mission in the world. Listen to these. Second Corinthians 3, verse 18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That's what Dallas Willard said. The Spirit is at work transforming us into the image of Jesus. And then 2 Corinthians 4, verses 5 through 6. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Christ. There's the kids, perfect timing.